Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Teresa Torres, thank you so much for being here. We're honored to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, it's a Monday. <laughs> but no, it's going great. A little chilly here in the Midwest. Looking Wonderful. forward to talking to you too. Uh, so the topic of today is leading products through discovery. And I think just as we quickly discussed in the in the pre-recording chat, I think um, product discovery in and by itself is vastly misunderstood and undervalued. So maybe just to differentiate from the get-go, what does discovery, product discovery mean and how is it different from product development, continuous discovery? Um, there are so many terms. So help us set a term or a meaning to what discovery means. Yeah, it's a little bit of jargon, but I think it's helpful jargon. So let's get into why. So historically, a lot of product teams, a lot of companies have been focused on how we deliver products. How do we take what we want to build, chunk it up into projects, get engineers to ship it out the door as quickly as possible. And there's a huge emphasis on how we build. How do we deliver products? I think with with discovery, we're starting to look at, are we building the right things? And discovery is, so we're contrasting discovery with delivery. Delivery being how we build, discovery being what we build. And I think um, having that language is really helpful because we've always had to decide what to build. We've always had to deliver it. Uh, But when we have terms for these sort of different types of activities, it allows us to better look at how are we doing in each of these areas. And I think without these terms, it's really easy to hyper-focus on delivery because it's often urgent. It takes a lot of time. It's kind of what's most visible and familiar to people. Uh, Humans being humans, we tend to think our discovery decisions are always right. So we don't think to question those. Um, And so I think what we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years, kind of depending on where you sit in the industry, uh, is a lot more emphasis on how we're making those decisions about what to build. And uh, we tend to put that into the discovery bucket. But don't we always know what exactly to build, right? Our engineers get hired because they know their stuff, right? They know what to build and how to build it. Then why do we need to spend so much time on discovery? Yeah, I, you know what? There are a lot of engineers that have a lot of great ideas about what to build. And I think some companies swing the pendulum too far and they ignore those ideas. Um, but here's the thing. I think what we're learning from, I think we're now, let's call it 30 years into the sort of consumer web. Um, we're learning, like what's nice about the consumer web is we get, uh, and I don't mean consumer like not B2B, I mean regular humans using the web. So since uh, the first browser came out, we're about 30 years into that era. And what's nice about that is that uh, what the web gives us is immediate feedback loops. We can see how people are using our products. We can see what they're doing. We can see what order they do things. Um, And unfortunately, what we learned when we started getting this visibility is that uh, customers, people that we're building software for, don't always use our products the way that we thought they would. Uh, And that's really what's starting to raise the question about, okay, we're building a lot of things that are not having the impact that we thought. How do we get better at building the right things? And so a lot of those engineering um, ideas, I think the kernels can be really good. 
but it's not enough to have a kernel of idea. We have to make sure that all the little details along the way um, are good as well. So do we have the right workflow? Does it match the mental model of our customer? Can they understand it? Do they know what order to do things? Does it actually help them accomplish their goal? These are the types of things that we can uncover in our discovery work. If you had 60 seconds with with somebody on this topic, that's it. That's all you got. You're, you're sharing an Uber. You can see where you're going. And they say, Teresa, give, give me two things I can do tomorrow to improve in these areas. Do you have an answer? Do you have, a, have, have you been asked that before? Yeah, I think the first, the first thing I would say is understand what impact your product is expected to have. So always with a product, we're trying to influence customer behavior in some way, shape or form. What is that? What does that look like? So if I work at Facebook, I might be trying to get you to view more ads. Maybe ostensibly I'm trying to get you to connect with friends and family, but in order for me to pay my bills, I also need you to get to look at ads. So just really understanding like what is our purpose? What is our goal? What are we trying to get the customer to do? And that's, I would put in the kind of like understand your outcomes bucket. And then the second thing I would say is uh, talk to customers every week. Talk to a customer every week. And for a lot of people that can sound really overwhelming, we can deconstruct that a little bit if that's helpful. But I think something magic happens when everybody on a product team gets regular exposure to customers. They see the gaps between how they see, think about the product and how their customer is thinking about the product. And I think that just that mere exposure has a huge impact on the way uh, product teams think about their products. Is this something that you would bring into the the either the contract or the discussions up front, like how you, what the levels of involvement are that you expect from the customer, either the customer or the users. Because we've seen so many organizations where the customers say, we're just too busy, or the stakeholders are, well, our agendas are already flooded with so many meetings. How do you expect us to really bring in that time to build, a, to, to work on this product as well? Yeah, okay, so let's, <laughs> One of the biggest challenges to when I tell you, you should talk to a customer every week, like the biggest challenge there is like, okay, how do I find someone to talk to? Um, here's the thing. Uh, one of the things I write a lot about in my book, Continuous Discovery Habits, is we want to automate the recruiting process. We want a customer to show up on our calendar every week without us having to do anything. It kind of sounds magical, but it's very doable. I've helped hundreds of teams do this. Here's the idea. You want to let your customer opt in. You're basically going to let them volunteer and say, hey, I'm willing to talk to you. So now we got to look at why would a customer do that? What we don't want to do is send them a generic message. I get these every week and I cringe every time I get them. It goes along the lines of, hi, I'm so-and-so from this company of this product that you use. I would like to talk to you about your experience because I'm doing research. Help me out. You know what? I say no to those 100% of the time. I teach product teams to do this. I still say no to those 100% of the time because what's missing in that me message, what's in it for me, right? I don't care that you're doing research. I don't know what you're doing research on. I don't know if I'm the right person. I don't know if I can be helpful. I don't know if me helping you helps me, right? So part of this is we got to start from the customer's perspective. So let like all of us are Riverside customers. We're recording right now on Riverside. Let's say Riverside wants to reach out to us. If they just say, hey, we're doing a research project about podcasters. Will you come talk to us? Not super motivating, right? But now if Riverside reaches out and says, hey, we've encountered this bug where sometimes you're about to go live and it doesn't work. 
And I've actually encountered this bug, and it was pretty catastrophic. We kind of had a mini version of it today. I was a little worried that we were going to run into the actual problem, which is you start a session, you get a bug, you close out your browser tab, but that doesn't actually close out that recording session. So now you go to record a new session, and it says a recording is in progress. And there's no way to fix the problem other than emailing the Riverside team, right? This is like a significant bug. Okay, if somebody emailed me and said, we've heard several reports from about this bug, including from you. Our team is taking it really seriously. We want to investigate what's happening. Can you get on a call with us for 20 minutes? 100% I'm going to say yes to that request. So what's the difference? It's very relevant to me. It's a pain point that I have that I benefit from if they solve it, right? Now we can expand this to a lot of other products. Like let's say LinkedIn reaches out to me and says, hey, we're interested in trying to be a better platform for creators. We notice that you have a big following. We want to learn more about how you use LinkedIn and how you can get more value from it. Perfect. That's directed towards me. I do want to get more value from it. I would love for them to build things for me personally to get more value from it. I might say yes to that. Right now, so when we reach out to customers, we have to be targeted. We have the more targeted we are, the more responses we're going to get. And then the second big mistake teams make is they rely on email. I don't, when I'm reading my email, I'm trying to get through it as quickly as possible. That's like when I get a request, it's kind of a nice to have. I'm just going to ignore it. Uh, I think the key here is we have to let people opt in when it's convenient to them. And so most of the time, what I teach teams to do is to let them opt in while they're using your product or service. I'm experiencing a problem on LinkedIn. Let me opt in to tell you about it. So a question coming from the audience kind of relating to this, tying into this, who talks to them? Who talks to our users, to our customers? Is it the team, is it the product manager, is it the product owner? Who in our product team talks to our customers or users? In short, I would say everyone. Uh, now, not in the same session, right? We don't want like, seven people on a team peppering a single person with a million questions. That's a terrible experience for your customer. So in, in any single interview, one person is conducting the interview. But you can have observers. Other people can watch the interview, right? Um, you, can, you can live stream it look internally to your office where they can just watch um, a recording. Actually, Zoom does this really well. You can have people on the call but just hide their cameras so the person doesn't feel really overwhelmed. We want everybody, like, at a minimum, we want a product manager, a designer, and an engineer um, participating in every in as many interviews as possible. Now, is that going to be feasible week in and week out? No, maybe the designer is sick today, and maybe next week the engineer gets pulled into a crisis. We don't have to be dogmatic about this. As a general rule, we're shooting for a product manager, a designer, and a software engineer together engaging with customers. Now, I like to see them rotate who's doing the interview. I want everybody to be capable of conducting the interview. That's going to help make it a more robust habit. It's going to help so when somebody's sick, you don't miss an interview. It's going to make it so that everybody's equally committed. They're all working on building the skill. Uh, but the reason why I want to see this cross-functional approach to interviewing is because you're each going to hear different things in the interview based on your prior experiences. This is how the human brain works. We filter what we hear. We associate with it based on our past knowledge and experience. We all have different knowledge and experience. The more different roles that hear the interview, the more value we're going to get out of the interview. And then just one quick caveat before people get upset with me. Uh, when I say a product <laughs> manager, a designer, and a software engineer, it's not exclusive to those roles. The key idea is it's cross-functional collaboration. If you have other roles on your team that should be included, by all means include them. 
you've built an entire course surrounding this, right? You've written books. Uh, are there any parts in there that teach developers how to conduct these kind of interviews? Because I can imagine if you've been a developer and you've been focusing on a certain language, just for the sake of argument, let's focus on Java. Having people skills or interviewing people and knowing how to conduct these usually is not necessarily in the curriculum. So how do you get quality in, uh, in, into those interviews, knowing how to ask certain questions and where to hone in on what kind of elements? Uh, is this something that you teach as well? Yeah, so a lot of people conduct customer interviews, but they do it in a way that doesn't get them reliable feedback. So the first thing I'm going to say is talking to any customer about almost anything is val more valuable than never getting exposure to customers. So when you're new to this, you don't have to overthink it. Just go talk to a customer, learn about them, be a curious human. You literally can interact with them like you just met a person at a bar or a friend of a friend at a party and just learn about their job, learn about what they're doing, learn about how you're, they're using your product. Like some exposure is always better than no exposure. Um, the challenge is we don't intuitively know how to ask the right questions to get reliable feedback. So what do I mean by reliable? This is a research term. It means that if I ask you about your experience and you tell me, you tell me something, and then I ask you another time, am I gonna get a similar response? So reliability is really about reproducibility. But there's also like other ideas around like, am I gonna learn what I need to learn to be helpful for making product decisions? So if we put a little bit of effort into asking the right questions, we can get a lot more value from those customer conversations. And so one of my goals in my book, again, Continuous Discovery Habits, there's a whole chapter on how to interview well. And I introduced this idea of story-based interviewing. So our intuition is to ask a whole bunch of who, what, why, how questions out of context. So for example, if I wanted to learn about Jim's Netflix behavior, I might say something like, Jim, what do you like to watch? Who do you watch with? What device do you typically watch on? The problem with these questions is that humans are not very good at asking or answering direct questions out of context. Now, when I say not very good, I'm not saying they're hard to answer. Jim can generate an answer for all of those questions, I'm assuming as long as he watches Netflix, right? Our brains generate fast answers. It's easy for us to answer those questions but our answers don't necessarily reflect our actual behavior. Now that's due to a lot of cognitive biases. The, the like yeah. short version of this is your brain is wired to keep you alive. Its job is to keep your lungs breathing and your heart beating. It's, not jo its job is not to think well, which is surprising to humans, right? Like we pride ourselves on thinking well, but actually that's not the brain's job. The brain's job is to uh, keep us physically alive uh, as humans, we get this extra benefit of the prefrontal cortex, which gives us all this advanced thought and whatnot, but it's energy expensive. It's very energy expensive. Like the brain uses more energy than any other part of the brain. And so we've, what's happened is that we've built in these shortcuts that allow us to take, like, to, to like not use as much energy. And that's good for survival because we, if we conserve energy, our heart will beat longer and our lungs will, will breathe longer, right? The challenge is these shortcuts sometimes don't reflect reality. And so as an interviewer, we wanna learn just a little bit of sort of cognitive psychology so we can learn how to ask better questions. And one of the biggest, like the easiest thing that teams can learn is instead of asking direct questions out of context, instead collect specific stories about customers' past behavior. So I don't wanna ask Jim all those who, what, why, how questions. I wanna ask Jim, tell me about the last time you watched Netflix. 
It's literally that simple, right? And then I want to keep Jim grounded in his last experience. I want to collect the whole story. I want to collect as much rich detail as possible. Um, and this is what chapter five of Continuous Discovery Habits is all about. I tried to write it in a way that like you could just read it and go do it. Um, but we know from experience people need practice. So we also offer a course called Continuous Interviewing that's just live practice time. You get together with a group, you take turns interviewing, you give feedback, the instructor gives feedback. It's just an opportunity to help build that skill and get people comfortable with this idea of how do I collect a rich story. I have a ton of questions, Jim. You want to go? So I love your question. Yeah. Uh, so I like your question about Netflix. What? How do you use data in a story like that? So if you asked me, and if, if you had asked me a few years ago, maybe when I was dating, like, what, what did you watch on Netflix last week? I might tell a woman, I'm, I'm, I'm admitting this to everybody. Like I might've said, Oh, I watched these documentaries. I'm really into this, but I'm not going to tell them I'm binging trash TV or like I'm binging great British bake off. So if you're asking a question like that, that has a fact-based answer, should the interviews have that and like have that viewers actual Netflix streaming information to kind of balance that with their own recollection? Because being deceptive is, is maybe one reason, but we're all just human. Like we're, we're terrible at remembering things. We are, our actual use of something may not be how we perceive our use. Yeah. So this, we got to be careful because there's sort of data privacy, um, regulations, company policies we have to be mindful of. So a lot of product teams, like if they worked at Netflix, they may not have access. I, I hope they don't have access to your individual viewing behavior. Right. So I don't want to walk into an interview and be like, I know that last night Jim watched the British Bake Off and, and, trailer trash boys, right? Like I don't, I, I probably don't have, if I work at a responsible and ethical company, I shouldn't have that data, right? Now I know a lot of early stage startups don't have these policies in place and they literally have the ability to do that. Even if you do have that data, you don't want to walk into the interview armed with like, you're telling me something that's different from what you actually did. Cause your job as the interviewer is just to be a curious human. So my job is to really hear your story and understand your experience. And even if it doesn't match the facts that I can collect mm. on the back end, that's okay. I'm trying to understand your perception and your perceived experience. Now, here's the thing. There will be times where we do know things about our customer and there might be a gap. And it's okay to like poke at that gap. But we don't want to poke at that gap in like a confrontational way. We don't want to do it in a way that disrupts the story. So like if I'm collecting a story about the last time you watched Netflix and I happen to know, again, I probably don't for data policy reasons, but if I happen to know you watched five episodes of a show and you're telling me that you watched two, I can use that information to try to jog your memory. And here's the thing about memory. Humans mm. are fairly good at remembering details about specific instances. So if I, as long as it's recent or salient, so recent, if I ask you about what did you watch for net, tell me about your experience last night, I'm going to get a pretty good story that's going to be fairly reliable. It's going to match your actual behavior. Now, if, I, if you watch Netflix every day and I'm trying to get, learn about last Thursday, that's way less reliable because you've had a whole bunch of incidences that are now conflicting with that and your memory is not going to be reliable. So part of this methodology is we need to be talking to people as quickly after the event as possible. 
Now, the other thing is there are some instances where saliency is really interesting, right? So like, let's say that I work at the knot and I'm trying to understand like, the knot is like a wedding planning website, right? So let's say that I am trying to understand um, the role of wedding photography photos over the life of a marriage. So now I don't wanna to talk to you the day after your wedding. I wanna to talk to you five years after the wedding, 10 years after the wedding, 15 years after the wedding. But I might still wanna ask you about your wedding day because I'm trying to understand how your memory and your like connection with that day changes over time. Now that's a particularly salient moment in most people's lives. So I can ask you about that day and you're gonna remember a lot of things. Now is your memory gonna be as reliable as if I asked you about it the next day? Of course not but we might be wanting to know what are the things that stand out over time. And then, so in those types of situations, it's okay to ask about something a little bit further in the past, but most of the time, we wanna be talking to people soon after the event occurred. And then as the interviewer, it's my job to help you with that memory, to help you remember. So memories are reconstructed, right? We all think about it as like, oh, I'm just gonna like dig into my brain and pull out this memory. That's not exactly how it works, right? Like we have, to re, we have to recollect the memory. And there's a lot of tricks we can do to help the person remember their story. And so that's a lot of what we get into in our interviewing course. And I'm actually working on, I'm reluctant to even say this publicly because I'm not committed to doing this yet, but I just started doing research on my next book. Um, and it's gonna get into some of these topics about it's going to be a deep dive on interviewing and we're going to get into like how do we arm you with these tricks to really help pull out a rich good story from a customer so two questions there uh one is if this book is going to be there can we get the first dibs on podcast <laughs> uh i i i'm learning not to answer hypotheticals so perhaps <laughs> feel free to reach out i'll take that Awesome. Uh, I'm actually, the reason why I'm like so reluctant to even say I'm writing this book is next week I'm publishing a blog post about burnout. Like I'm just, I tried to set goals for this year for the second year in a row. Like I just, it literally made me physically ill. So I'm giving myself permission to just work on whatever's fun. Right now, researching this book is really fun. I can't predict if writing this book is going to be fun. I hope it will be. Uh, That's sort of, I'm in this phase of like, I'm going to do whatever brings me joy. So I'm not committing to it, but I will share that I am exploring uh, writing my next book. I think that this is a recurring topic that Jim and I have discussed over and over and over again. Uh, there are too few people that are actually focused on stuff that they really enjoy doing and, and focusing whatever they like. They're so caught up in the moment and uh, doing whatever the organization is telling them, which kind of is a horrible segue into my next question. Uh, <laughs> How, because I appreciate everything that you're saying here. I, I wholeheartedly support the the idea of talking to users, talking to customers, yet on the same page, we're battling so much of the organizational battles and, and politics within the organizational structure is that you have to work with this manager and you've, you've had to, you have to contact HR before. And I've, I've had teams within the same organization they are not allowed to go into physical stores because of politics. While if you know the clip from, from YouTube on the Nordstrom Innovation Lab, they would get so much support actually going into stores and talking to customers and people using the products and, and going through whatever product that they're building, yet they are not allowed to do so. So I can imagine 
if you bring this idea to organizations that are completely new with this concept of either discovery or really getting engaged with the users that they have, how do you convince the organizational power that they should shift this from talking to internal stakeholders to actual users? Yeah, I'm going to start by saying I was a terrible employee and you should not take my advice. Uh, but I am very skeptical of you're not allowed to. Right? Like, let's say I work at Target and Target, I'm not going to use Target because Target wants their, I know Target wants their teams talking to customers. So I'm not going to use them. Let's say you, uh, you work at company X and I'm not talking about Twitter. I'm just using X as a variable. And they don't want you to uh, talk to your customers and you're a retail shop. I mean, do they literally mean if you're ever in one of our retail stores and you encounter a customer, you're not allowed to interact with them, even if it's on a Saturday and it's just part of your life and you're buying something at your own company store? They don't literally mean that, right? Like what they're concerned with is this like dance of I own this relationship or this other person, it's this other person's job to do that. Or like nobody gets fired for like interacting with a human in some other context, right? So the first thing we have to do is we have to deconstruct this. Like, where is that fear coming from? Who has that fear? Why does that fear exist? And even before we get there, is that real? Like, are you asking permission when you should just be doing something? Like, is, are you being told you're not allowed because you literally went and said, can I go to a store? How about don't ask, just do it, right? Because like, you are a human in the world that is allowed to interact with other humans in the world. And it doesn't have to be under the guise of, I work for this retail, retail company. I want to learn about your customer experience. It could be, I'm just a human in the world and you're a human in the world and we get to interact with each other, right? So like, there's this first piece of like, we put too much stock into asking for permission. Now, again, I'm going to throw out the caveat as I was a terrible employee. Please do not take my advice. Please don't email me when you get fired because you literally did something your boss told you not to do. That's not what I'm suggesting. Right. But like we tend to create these unwritten rules for ourselves that don't exist. Okay. Now I have worked with plenty of teams where literally the salesperson, especially in a B2B environment said, do not talk to my customer. Why do they say that? They're afraid that you're going to say something that is going to ruin the relationship and put that revenue at risk. Okay. We got to deconstruct this rationally. How many times in your lives, whether personal or professional, did you have one conversation with a human that completely destroyed that relationship? That's the question to us right now? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a great question. I don't think so. I don't think I've ever had. What about you, Jim? I have. Oh yeah, I mean, destroys a, a hard word, but I would say completely modified and made it extremely difficult to ever Okay, now I really want to know Jim's story, but I'm not going to put him on the spot. Uh, was it in a personal I context am. or a professional context? Both. One of the ones I'm thinking of was actually both personal okay. and professional. And was this like an extraordinary circumstance or a more everyday circumstance? They're an okay. extraordinary yeah. person. Okay. So, so here's my point yeah. with this. Most of the time, right? There's always exceptions. Most of the time, we know how to interact with humans in ways that don't blow up the relationship. Now, Jim, I love that you shared that because there will be times, there will always be times where 
there's a conversation and it puts the revenue at risk and your salesperson's gonna blow up you, at you. Like that could happen. It is in the realm of possibility. So let's say that I, let's just get practical here. Let's say I work at a company, I wanna talk to customers. It's a B2B environment. I'm being explicitly told by the sales leader, by the sales rep, I'm not allowed to talk to this customer. What would I do in that situation? The first thing I would do is say, okay, how about you talk to the customer? Can I just observe the next time you talk to the customer? Right? I'm not going to say a word. Can I just sit there and observe? That's what I, that's my, that would be my first step. If the sales rep says no, I might say, okay, can you record a conversation and I'll listen to it? I think it's rare that a salesperson is going to say no to that, but it's possible they could, in which case I would go find another sales rep, right? But like, here's the idea. There's this fear of the unknown. The sales rep doesn't know who you are, maybe. They don't know what you're going to ask. They don't know what the implications of you asking that thing are. So the key is like, how do we break this fear down? Just little tiny step at a time. Can I just come observe a meeting? First of all, most sales reps want a product person mm. in the room to answer all the product details they're uncomfortable answering. So maybe that's your first foray into it. Then once the sales rep is comfortable with that, you can say, okay, based on the last seven meetings that I've observed, I would love to start asking customers to tell us about a time when they did this really specific thing. The next time we talk to a customer at the end, can I just ask that question? And the sales rep might freak out and be like, well, why are you gonna ask that? And you go, look, because if I can find out what they're doing, I could build this thing for them. And then you, the sales rep starts to see the value of that. And they go, okay, well, I'm still scared. You go, okay, well, who's the best, who's the customer that's least scary to ask this to? Let's start with them, right? So then we ask that customer, we get a little story back. You gotta close the loop with the sales rep and say, okay, if more customers have a story like this, maybe we could build something like this to make it better for them, right? Now, what are we doing? We're arming our sales rep with ammo to yeah. say, hey, we're going to make your lives better because you told us a story. I want to do that more and more. Come collect more stories from my customers, right? So it's really about chipping away at this fear of the unknown. I have never not seen this work. Like 100% of the teams that I work with that yeah, are getting resistance from sales, when they take this strategy, it works 100% of the time. Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values, and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They've interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. Yeah, I had a, a conversation not too long ago with a product manager and in the moment, you you both might have heard of the uh, the common meme of you know two two business people talking in the, about training the employees. Like, yeah. what if we train our people and they leave? And the other one says, "Well, yeah. What yeah. if we don't train them and they stay?" So I'm talking to this product manager, and I said, "When's the last time anyone on any of these teams have talked to a customer?" And they're like, "They got like you're saying, Teresa. They got really nervous about like, well, what if they do this? And what if they do this? And what if they let slip this thing we're building?" And they gave me a whole bunch of reasons that were assumption based and fear based and, you know, fear of the unknown. And I said, well, 
what if we keep building all these things and they and they don't talk to the customer and they should and they kind of thought about it and they were you know i don't i'm not going to say that i changed their opinion but like to underscore what you're saying I do think it's about chipping away because now it's about with that exact person. Now we're able to, we've eliminated one layer between the team and the customer. So it's getting a tiny little bit better. And now we're going to be working on the second layer and the second layer and the next layer. But um, I do have a question from the chat that I want to tie into all this. But before I get to that, I just want to reflect on one thing and see if this kind of applies to uh, what you suggest is I've said on this podcast before I have an implanted medical device. And when I go to the doctor, he always starts by how are you feeling? So kind of like you're talking about telling a story and, and he might even say the last time you rode your mountain bike, how did you feel at the end of that, you know, two hour workout or how did you feel this? And then he swivels to the computer and he's he's confirming it with data. And he's saying, the data says you should feel good. So he's kind of doing both. Now, uh, I, I completely agree with you around privacy and not blindsiding it. But in the medical profession, I think you, you want your doctor to have data about you. Um, the other... Yeah, and there's things you can do when recruiting where you can, the customer can say, yes, you can look at my data. Right. So there's there's ways we can get around these privacy mm -hmm. policies. It's right. just that the customer has to be willing to share that data. So I have worked with teams where they do that, where they say, Jim, we want to interview you about your Netflix of behavior. Are you OK with us looking at your viewing patterns for the week beforehand? Because it will mm -hmm. help guide our conversation. Right, right. And the other thing I notice, and this is what I'm really curious about, and then I want to ask Yannick's question from the chat is, um, what I noticed while the doctor's talking to me about the story and telling me like, how'd you feel last week when you rode your mountain bike, the nurse is observing and capturing notes. So a technique I've used in the past, and I'm curious again, if, if I just lucked into something that you would suggest is if you do have multiple people attending an interview, is it good to give them different things to look at? Like, hey, you pay attention to this, you pay attention to this. And we're all experiencing the same thing. But I've left those interviews with customers and have had very different conversations with people who are at the same table because they came at it from a different perspective. Definitely. So the first thing I'm going to say is if you are conducting the interview, you should not be taking notes. Good tip. It takes a lot of cognitive energy to collect a good story. You should be 100% focused on collecting the story. Somebody else needs to be taking notes. Now we live in an era where like a lot of our interviews are happening over Zoom and we can just record the interview and that relieves the burden of note taking. I still want someone live taking notes because it helps the interviewer in the moment with what do I follow up on? Am I missing anything? The note taker real time can help with that. Um, I also know a lot of teams that never go back and watch those videos and then they don't have good notes. So that's also a problem. Um, but one thing I talk about is like, you want to be pulling out opportunities. So opportunities are unmet needs, pain points, and desires. And having someone specifically focused on pulling out opportunities can be really helpful. Having someone focus on drawing the experience map that represents the story can be really helpful. And then if you have an easy way for both of those people to be giving feedback to the interviewer, um, that helps to make sure you're not missing mm -hmm. critical details. Um, there is one thing I want to um, go back to just for a second before we lose it and go to this next question, which is on the sales side of things. Um, so 
most salespeople that I've worked with, and I think this is pretty universal because I hear it from a lot of other teams too, they think the product teams are building the wrong stuff, right? Like a new release comes out and salespeople are like, why did you build this? I don't care about this. My customers are asking for this thing over here and you're building this. There's a huge disconnect between what sales teams are asking for and what product teams are building, right? And salespeople are super opinionated about what we build, right? So one avenue to get buy-in from salespeople is to be like, look, we don't want to build the wrong stuff. We need access to your customers to make sure we're building the right stuff and to align those things, <laughs> right? Now, what you might get pushback on is the salespeople would be like, I already talked to the customers. Why don't you just believe me? Okay, well, one of the things you can do is to help them see how there's a lot of gaps in what they're hearing from the customer, right? Like, okay, customer needs widget A. How are they going to use widget A? In what context? For how long? With a who? who's involved? And most salespeople don't have that detail, right? So then you're on, now you're on the same team. Like, hey, salesperson, you heard this need. Let's work together to get the details to make sure we, buy the, we build the right thing so that you have a new thing to sell to that customer. And now it's not like, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. It's let's work together to make sure we're getting what we need to build the right stuff. A question tying into that coming from Smita is how do you remove that gap? So how do you start shorten those things if you have, yeah. well, two different worlds and two different perspectives that don't necessarily align? So what are steps that you can take to start shorten that distance? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake I see people make is they try to do it top down. They try to get their like C-level product executive to get the C-level sales executive on board and they turn it into a giant organizational change problem and you're not going to make any progress. It's just nobody thinks, nobody at the executive level thinks this is important enough. It's going to go nowhere. So I like to think about this as bottoms up, like find one product team and one sales rep that are willing to work together. And again, follow that process of like, Maybe first send one person to observe some of those sales calls or be the product expert in those sales discovery calls, right? And then iterate your way there to a more collaborative approach. And then once you get that working with one or two sales reps and they're getting better results from it, like the sales team is getting better results from it. And you can show like based on these conversations, we've built these things that work really well for these customers. Now you can go have the executive level conversation and say, how do we repeat these successes across the organization? Wonderful. That makes me think of, uh, we've been going, looking at the chat, the chat's going wild and people are, are sharing their stories and on things that are going bad and going well. I'm curious about your stories as well. Like what's the best and what's the absolute worst situation that you've been in? Uh, that's a really good question. I will say uh, most people that opt in to an interview are there to share their experience, right? The most people, they're gonna, they're, they're personable, they wanna share their experience, that's why they opt in. Sometimes like a bad experience is when somebody's really upset and they're like, they opted in because they just wanna gripe. We gotta let them do it, right? Like if we ignore that emotion, we're not gonna get anything valuable from the interview whatsoever. So it's like a common like kind of negative experience. What I like to do in that situation is to time box it. Say we have 30 minutes, we're doing a 30 minute interview and I have a customer show up, I want to learn about X, and they show up and say, I got grape one, two, and three, and they've got nothing to do with X. I might say, okay, we've got 30 minutes together. Um, how about we do this? Can we take 10 minutes to go through your gripes, and then we'll spend the last 20 minutes uh, 
uh, doing the thing that we scheduled time for. And most people, as long as you're generous, like you give them a third of the time, they're pretty good with that, right? And so then the, what you don't want to do is when those gripes come in, you do not want to argue with them. You do not want to, even if you, they can do what they want to do in the product, you are not going to tell them that right there in the moment. Your whole job is to acknowledge their emotion, to listen to them, and to help them feel heard. <laughs> that is it. You can take notes, and at the end of that gripe session, you can say, I think I fully understand your concerns. Let me summarize them for you, and you better do a good job summarizing them. And then you can say, let me work with my team and get back to you on these. So now the person feels heard. They feel like a next step is going to happen. And now you've opened the door. Okay, let's get back to our interview. Now, a lot of those gripes may be completely out of your control, and that's fine. What you do is you follow up with them and you say, look, I pass these along to my X team. I pass these along to my Y team. I'll let you know when I hear back from them. You may never hear back from them. You may have to go back to the customer and be like, sorry, this isn't on our short-term roadmap. But you're doing that after the interview. So you can still get value out of that interview. You're not over-promising anything to the customer that you can't, you aren't in a position to promise, but you're acknowledging the emotion, you're acknowledging their experience. So that's one of the like not very good experiences. Another thing that can happen that's not super fun is even though they opted in and they have a relevant story, they just don't want to tell it. This is rare, but I have seen it happen where I'll be like, Jim, what? Uh, tell me about your experience on Netflix. And Jim's like, oh, I just watched something last night. Well, are you okay telling me what it is? No, I don't really want to share that. And like, that's how the whole interview goes. Like one word answers, no detail. Um, here's the thing. Most of the time when you're experiencing this, I feel comfortable saying this because I've observed a lot of interviews. Most of the time when you're experiencing this, it's because you did not build rapport. You did not situate, so you didn't create a safe space for the participant. You're not situating them back in the moment of the story they're telling, so they don't want to do the work to remember it. So the, most of the time, the problem is on the interviewer. It's a signal you need to work on your interviewing skill. We want to blame it on the participant. Most of the time, it's an indicator you need to work on your interviewing skill. I will say, even if you are an expert interviewer, there will be times where you just have an unwilling participant. If you've worked on your interviewing skill and this is happening one out of 20 times, one out of 50 times, don't sweat it. Just move on to the next interview. And this is one of, uh, I think this ties into Yannick's question, which is about recordings. Like if the team, if it's not right for any reason to bring the entire team there, uh, what are your thoughts on recordings? And I think this can also kind of uh, deal with the other questions in the chat around plugging that gap between what is actually stated by the person being interviewed and what gets back to the team if they're not sitting there at the table. So any thoughts on recordings or just kind of that game of telephone that can, you know, that is normal in a lot of contexts? Yeah, I do think you should record your interviews. I think if somebody needs to miss an interview, they can watch the recording to catch up. Here's what I see happen too often. The product manager or the designer takes the lead on interviewing. They do the interview week after week. Nobody else comes. They record them. They go into a repository. Nobody watches them. That's not cross-functional team-based interviewing, right? So I think you want to build the habit and set the standard of we're going to interview together. 
And when something unusual comes up, occasionally, not every week, when you have to miss an interview, we'll let you watch the recording to catch up. Mm -hmm. But be careful. That's a slippery slope. It quickly turns into one person is the interviewer and everybody else does nothing. Yeah. I'll just add to that. I, I remember one conversation years ago where the team was in the interview and they were arguing about what the person's feedback was. And I said, well, we don't have to keep arguing. Let's go to the tape. And it, it felt like, you know, uh, an NFL replay, like, let's go to the tape. We pulled it up and we yeah. replayed that 10 minute chunk of a two hour video. And it was super helpful. And yeah. there's even modern tools in Zoom and Teams and other things that will create transcripts for you. So you could it, to even make this easier where you don't have to guess anymore, you can pull out those really salient parts where you asked that provocative question and got a great story from the customer or from the, the prospect, et cetera. You know, even better than transcripts is we now have AI tools that will automatically pull the salient clips out for you. Mm -hmm. um, I know I've been um, experimenting with Opus Clips does a pretty good job. I think the script does a pretty good job with this. Um, here's the thing though, be careful. I don't think these AI tools are ready, like we're ready to just offload our synthesis to AI tools. I know there's a lot of companies that are arguing you can do that yet. I'm a huge fan of these AI tools. In fact, I think I'm going to start a blog about them, a new blog about them. Uh, but uh, I, I don't, I, I want us to use them to help us. I don't want us to use them to replace the human element of understanding other humans. So I don't, I won't say never, but I don't think today's technology, you can say, tell me what was relevant in this interview. I think the human still has to be involved there. Uh, but, you know, we used to have to like tag text and like have a video editor go in and edit at this point and then edit at that point and create these clips. And we never did it. And we never shared clips of interviews with people around the company. And now we literally can upload our video and get 10 clips and we can look at them and say, this one looks pretty good. Let's share this one. And that's awesome. So do use it for that purpose. Yeah. One of the, I was talking to a colleague uh, over the weekend, they're, using AI to find patterns for them because humans were really good at sensing patterns. But imagine if you have a whole bunch of, uh, a, of a data set from your customer feedback, it might be extremely difficult for the average person to pull out patterns there. And there are some AI uh, tools that can help you with that, where you can say, hey, column G contains all of the customer feedback that they just typed in that rich text box. Can you summarize this and pull out patterns. That's a great use of AI for your average person to save yourself hours and to kind of complement your skill set. Now, it's not perfect, but I, I am excited about how AI can do things like that. I don't ever want it to replace rich one-to-one -one customer interviews and feedback, but I think it's a tool in our tool belt, right? Yeah, I love it for yeah, so I'll say two things about this. If you're trying to synthesize, like summarize large volumes of data, support tickets, forum posts, it's pretty darn good at that. And you're and no human is going to take the time to do that. So what you're doing is you're using it to get value out of something you wouldn't otherwise be able to get value out of. It's not going to be perfect, but it's great because it's additive. When we're talking about interviews, we are doing that synthesis ourselves, and we could offload it to this AI but I think we're gonna see a decrease in value. Here's what I like to do. I like to treat the AI as another person on my team. So we're all listening to the interview, we're all pulling out our insights, 
I'm going to also give my transcript to ChatGPT and say, what insights are you pulling from this? And then I'm going to treat them like a team member and say, OK, do I see the same thing? Is this valid or is this a hallucination? Is this did, did the ChatGPT catch something I didn't catch? Right? That's a really powerful use of it. And we might get to the point where AI is better at us than this. I'm not going to poo-poo that either. I just don't think we're there yet. Interesting. Yep. Something else you mentioned before, just jumping back, because I know people are going to be listening to this and they go, hey, I heard roadmap. And many people are, many organizations expect roadmaps to be built for the entire 2024 year or wherever you want to go and into full detail. So how do roadmaps come to play when, when we're talking discovery? Yeah, the first thing to do is to understand what's the purpose of your roadmap in your organization. So different organizations have different needs for this, right? Some boards want a three-year plan and they want to see a three-year roadmap. That's a very different purpose than we're creating a roadmap for our customers or we're creating a roadmap so that marketing can plan campaigns. So the first thing to do is to, in, and this is going to be unique for every organization. Given our organization, what role is the roadmap playing? Okay. Now, most organizations default to the standard. Here's a list of features and release dates. It's always a myth. We never hit it. It always changes, right? But it's always stressful and a huge ordeal and melodramatic every time something changes. So what I would do is I'd say, once I understand that purpose, how do I start to shift that roadmap to better represent the ambiguity and uncertainty we face about the future? So if my roadmap is primarily for the marketing team and they need to use it to coordinate launch campaigns, I might start to look at how do we move away from marketing the release of code to start marketing customer success? Now, I'm not going to get there overnight, right? So I might go to my marketing team and I might say, Hey, it's great that you have all these launch plans around our roadmap. Keep doing that. By the way, last quarter we released this thing and we have these three customers that are getting amazing value from it. Can we do some marketing around that? Which by the way is way better marketing, right? So I'm starting to teach them how to do more outcome driven marketing before I disrupt their world, right? So now we get some positive examples of like, hey, we just did some great customer stories. What's your marketing team going to say to that? Can we do that more often? Because I guarantee that marketing is way better than release planning marketing, right? So then the more that you do that, the more you release those, you, you, um, your marketing team capacity is limited. They can't do everything they were doing plus these new style campaigns. So eventually they're going to stop doing those launch campaigns. And eventually you don't need a feature-based roadmap. You now can have a like outcome-based roadmap or an opportunity-based roadmap. I really like the now, next, later, or now, next, future format that um, Jana Bastow popularized because I think it really reflects our view of the future. We can have a lot of detail about what, what we're working on right now. We can have less detail about what might be next, and we're going to have even less detail about what we're building in the future or later. And I think it's important that we represent that. But moving to that style of roadmap from a fixed feature list is a big organizational change. To make that change happen, we have to understand who today is currently depending on this document and how do we slowly over time teach them how to depend on outcomes and opportunities instead. This brings me to a question, which is um, it, one thing that I have, have picked up on from people asking them about why do we not talk to customers more is 
it, it, it tends to fall into one of two categories. And these are a little bit cynical from my perspective is one is some product managers or salespeople or executives think they're Steve Jobs and they're they're like, our customers don't know what we want. I know what they want and I'm going to create a market where there is none. Okay, great. The other one though is a fear around, well, what if they don't like what we're building? So I'm curious if, and if you don't ask, it's like, uh, you know, it's the cat in the box. If you don't ask if your customers like it, you don't hear things that are going to be disruptive to you. Do you have any stories from your past where you did some amount of interviews or customer interaction to find out that the team was building the wrong thing, like in a major way? And, and if so, I'd love to hear like how that went and what the outcome of that was. Yeah, plenty. So first of all, I will say Steve Jobs did do customer research. He used to hide in the bushes outside Apple stores to watch what people were doing. So this idea that he didn't do Apple, like he did say customers don't know what they want. He means that from a solution standpoint, they absolutely know their needs and pain points, right? And he was remarkably good at observing the like mundane everyday pain points and then developing solutions for them. So first of all, that whole idea that Steve Jobs didn't do this is kind of bogus. Um, one story that I'll share quickly here is um, I worked at a startup that was um, focused on new college grad hires. So they were a job board that helped new college grads uh, find their first job out of school. Uh, when I joined the company, they looked like any other job board product, which means you went to their homepage, you saw a box that said, what type of job do you want and where in what location? I started interviewing new college grads. And one of the things that I heard over and over again is I have no idea what type of job I'm qualified for, and I'm willing to live in any of these cool cities. So I heard this in interview after interview after interview. It became very apparent. We were asking them two questions from the very beginning that they had no idea how to answer. Here's what I'll tell you. At the time that I joined that homepage, only 36% of visitors actually filled in those fields and started a search. It's pretty abysmal. It didn't take very long to figure out why, right? So what we did was we stopped asking students what kind of jobs they wanted because they don't have any work experience. They don't know what kind of jobs they're qualified for. And we stopped asking them where they wanted to live because we knew they, for many of them, about 50% of them either wanted to look for a job where they went to school or where they grew up. The other 50% literally were interested in living anywhere that was cool. Okay, so we stopped asking about location. We did ask, um, in a different place, they could set a preference of limit my search to just these locations. But on the homepage, we stopped asking that. What we started asking was, where did you go to school? What did you study? When are you scheduled to graduate? Those three questions told us what jobs you're qualified for, what types of employers would be interested in you, and whether we should show you part-time jobs or full-time jobs. We rent overnight from 36% started their search to 86% started their search. That is by far one of the biggest jumps I've ever seen in a conversion rate. And it literally was because the product mental model was so far off from how job seekers searched, these job seekers searched. Um, and it was because there was a bunch of adults in the company thinking that new college grads look for jobs the same way adults look for jobs. They don't. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a great, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great finding, and probably like you said, not hard to find. Uh, maybe one last real quick question because I think it's an interesting one. What TV show or movie is an example of the workplace that you would like to see in real life? Wow, that's a great question. I have no idea. 
you know what I'm going to say, and I don't mean it politically, so I might alienate a bunch of people, but Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, the reason why I would say that is everybody was like wicked smart, super motivated at work and like, and like cared. It was like very heartfelt. Uh, I think that would be my pick. And even if you're not like left-wing politics, it's okay. It's not about the politics. It's about the environment. I need to go and check that out. Haven't heard of it yet, but it's a... You, you got to be okay with like over-the-top idealism because it is over-the-top idealism, but it's super well-written, amazing characters. The dialogue is fast and furious. It's amazing. Definitely going to check that out. Teresa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for answering all of our questions and the audience's questions. I'm 100% sure uh, they appreciate it. We really do. Uh, thank you again so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And for folks that are interested in learning more, the book is Continuous Discovery Habits. Uh, you can also find me online at productclock.org. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, Teresa. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.